think that was the official definition of a smattering of applause. Thanks for that. Oh, yeah. You, you took my bait. Uh, uh, singing, let heaven come. I love, I love to sing that. And I'll, I just want to connect that with you all this morning because when I'm singing, let heaven come, you guys know that there is a heaven. And heaven is a concept that we kind of grab onto because none of us have ever really been there, I don't think. Um, but heaven is a place where who God is is fully revealed. And that in heaven, who God is and who we are is fully connected. And when I'm singing, let heaven come, what I'm asking the Lord for and what I'm in my heart connecting to and believing God for is who God fully is and who we fully are is connected without division, without separation, without pain and sorrow, that the life of God would come to the earth in power and in fullness. And we have been taught, and I think that it's very biblical, that heaven is not a place that we go to when we die. Heaven is a place that's coming to earth as we're living. And Jesus taught us how to pray. He said, let heaven come on earth, even as it is already in the heavens. The Greek construction of that sentence makes it plain that we can say on earth now, because in heaven it already is. And the scriptures are full of moments of heaven to earth. One of the great moments of heaven to earth, one of the early ones, is at Mount Sinai when God comes in fire onto the mountain. And God set his people free out of slavery, drew him to himself. He set him free in his grace. He didn't give them the Ten Commandments, you know, one, every, one commandment for every plague. No, he set them free, brought them to himself to worship him, and gave him the law as worship. And he called Moses up into the glory. And Moses, for 40 days and 40 nights, a season of time, he's in the glory in the presence of God. And the Lord reveals to him in Exodus 31-ish, 34 maybe, 30-ish. Man, I really messed the flow. But the Lord reveals to him. In the glory, the, the archetypical picture of the tabernacle. He gives them all of this tabernacle in the wilderness stuff. He gives them the designs and the measurements. And you would be tempted to just skip over that unless you've been to Timnah and you've gone into this little place that's a hundred blazing degrees hot and stood there in this model replica. But what God is doing is he's saying worship exists in heaven. Moses, you're in glory. You're in my presence. Worship exists up here. All the angels are singing, holy is the Lord. Worship exists here. And here's what it looks like. And I want you to take the worship that lives in heaven. And I want you to go down onto the earth. And I want you to build it. I want you to take what's in heaven and build it on the earth. Why? So that all the people can come into my presence. So that all the people would know that I am their God and I am with them. And it's not just you, Moses, coming up to talk to me. That they can all know me. And this morning I want to talk to you guys about the presence of God. That's a word that means something to me. I like the word. I've, I've wrestled with maybe changing the word. Trying to find another word because I obsess about words. But the word presence is very important to me. Because over a decade now... 
the Lord has just surprised me with his presence. And I've been cultivating an experience of daily encounters with God's voice and the experience of God on earth in my daily life, quietly alone in my car, up here in front of y'all with the presence of God. And the presence of God is very different than the religion that I grew up in, in some important ways. It's not totally different. But I want to talk a little bit about that distinction here this morning, the difference between or a distinction between the presence of God and a biblical principle about God. And I will never forget the time it was I was three days into marriage and I was in a little hotel along the River Arno in Florence, Italy, day two of my honeymoon. And I had met my wife. We had dated for four months. We were engaged for four months. It was this sweet romance. And we planned a trip. I got to plan a trip. I got rushed off to Italy. And I, I awoke day three of my marriage, day two of my honeymoon, in my first marital panic. Because I woke up and my wife's asleep. I'm in this hotel room. And all of a sudden, the, the surrealness of it all left. And the reality was staring me in the face. And I went, my whole life has been about getting married. And I remember the spot on SeaTac Highway driving past Boeing on the way out to an island called Whidbey Island. We're going to catch a ferry and go see some old fortresses. And I'm driving past that and I'm explaining to my mom as the 12 year old boy about how I'm going to get married. It wasn't your typical 12 year old boy. Um, it was going to be a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle wedding. So I guess it was like, but it's not true. But I was explaining to her how my wife was going to get the ceremony. She could do whatever she wanted to with the church, but I was going to get the reception and it was going to be a party and I was going to have my band play and I didn't have a band and I actually never had a band, but 12 year old boys need bands, you know. So I was going to have my band play and I was going to sing and I would be impressed with my beautiful voice. And then I'd step off the stage in the spotlights and I would dance with my wife and I would romance her into the wee early morning hours. And it was going to be this beautiful, epic romance. And I'm describing this all to my mother. And I had 17 years of that. Dreaming about that, thinking about that, thinking about how it would happen, thinking about the girl, thinking about the kinds of things that needed to take place for me to, to get married. And my life was about getting married. Relationally, my heart connected for years about that. I woke up in Florence, Italy, and as the dawn broke over the River Arno, I went, ah! All I've ever thought about is trying to get married. Now I is married, and I don't know what to do. And the reality of it all came crashing into me. Oh, now I have to be married? Who are you and what are we doing? I mean, our relationship was totally built on getting married. And that's the way that, that's the way that it is. You know, by definition, I had no experience there. I had a lot of principles as a young man growing up. I grew up in the church and I had, I had been given principles from, from my family about what to do to save yourself from marriage, how to, how to get married and the proper steps of doing it the right way. And... You know, and I followed those principles and I, it, those principles mattered to me. But I discovered that I did not marry a principle. I married a person. And if I had really thought that I married a principle, then it, 
There's sometimes that, that we have, I think this can happen sometimes in some unhealthy relationships, is that, is that we've got this idea about who this person should be and what they should do to meet our needs. And we live in our own heads about how the world ought be. We've got real, and we're real strongly convicted. And convictions are empowering, right? I'm standing on this. And I'm strong. And, but I didn't marry my principles and convictions. I married my wife. And she thinks different than me. She cares about different stuff than I do. And it's sort of a repetitive fight that we're getting better at discussion. It's a repetitive conversation that I am learning to value her response to me and not my principle about how she ought to respond to me. Because I married a person, not a principle. And I want to talk to you this morning about the difference between a principle and the presence of God in particular. But you can apply this in other areas of your life. Because oftentimes we'll equate the two or that we'll really have no idea really more about what the principle um, is that we're really believing And so I want to take a look real quickly at a couple of key scriptures because Jesus is kind of a big deal. And he came to demonstrate the reality of heaven coming to earth and invite us into the presence of God. And there's a couple of key scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about the new covenant. This is a big discussion, which I'm not even going to, you know, touch the surface of it. But the great passages about the new covenant in the old covenant is in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. And I want to take a look at those to help understand some about what Jesus is doing as he invites us into a covenant relationship with God in a new way. And if you can put that up there, it's Jeremiah 31, 31. And Jeremiah is a prophet. He's the weeping prophet. And he's preaching and speaking, releasing the word of a God, the word of God to a nation that is in rebellion that God has given them all the laws and the commandments that were ultimately let, meant to lead them into an encounter with God. And they have rejected them. They haven't been following them. And the greater tragedy of not following what God said is you don't get to be with God. It's not just disobedience. It's that you're not with God now. He said, here's the path to life. And you're like, oh, I'm going to do my own thing. Well, you get to do your own thing, but you're not with the father. The prodigal son discovers that in the pig pen. And so God's crying out to his people through his prophet Jeremiah. And he's saying to them these things. They live in exile in Babylon. Their temple has been destroyed in 586 by Nebuchadnezzar. They're in exile, away from the temple, away from the only thing that they had. To con- away from all the things they had to connect to God. But God speaks this through his prophet Jeremiah. He says, but this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in after those days, those days are these days that they're living in at this time, um, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. They were commanded to write the word on their foreheads, the little uh, teflium 
things. If you've been to Israel, you've seen this, to bind it on their wrist. They've, they were called to do these external things, to remember God and his promises. And he's saying, okay, there's coming a time when it's not just going to be an external thing. But I'm going to put it in you. I'm actually going to put my life and my word in you. And there's a difference between having something on you and having something in you. Clothes are on you. Skin is in you. There's a difference. But the prophet Ezekiel gives kind of a companion piece. Ezekiel prophesies to the same kind of people, the dry bones guy. And he speaks these words. And it's about this new covenant. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. The Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I, the Lord, will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Here's the great part. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules or my just decrees. So God is saying to them, look, I know right now what you know is what you know. But I'm going to take what you know and I'm actually rooted in you. Right now you have a principle about a thing, but I'm going to take the presence of God that is in between the Ark of the Covenant with the angel's wings that just barely touch that create the mercy seat. This heaven to earth picture. I'm going to take that presence of God and I'm going to put it in you. And for the faithful Hebrew to hear that the presence of God that existed only in the Holy of Holies, that only one person on one day of the year, ever got to go near it, that God would take that presence and put it in every one of us. Had to have been an important statement to them. Because it's one thing to know about God, and it's quite another to be with him. And that's what happens in the Garden of Eden. We get this picture of humanity, and we get the two trees Right? And, and there's the knowledge of good and evil. And the knowledge is the word knowledge is, is skill or perception or ability. It's not the Hebrew word yada, which is experience, encounter. God calls it a tree of skill and perceptive ability. And God says that when you trust in your own skill and your own perceptive ability, you will die. And that's weird to me because that's like our most prized religious virtue. Knowing right and wrong. Being able in our own wisdom and ability to perceive things. Because Hebrews talks about having our senses trained to discern good and evil, right and wrong. Hebrews talks about that. Now, the problem with that is that the choice in the garden gives us a picture of what goes on. Because Adam and Eve wanted to become like God, but they didn't want to go to the tree of life to become like God. They wanted to eat from their own knowledge and perceptive abilities to become like God. They wanted to be like God without being with God. They traded knowledge about God for the intimacy that they had with God. And when that happens, your connection to God dies. And I want to make some distinctions here this morning because our temptation is just in our culture. We can thank the Greeks for this. Uh, but our, our temptation is when we when we live based on our ideas and ideas are powerful. Knowledge is powerful. When we live based on those ideas, oftentimes when someone comes and they share a different idea, we immediately think, I mean, a lot of us will recoil, especially if they're talking about an important idea that we hold and you think differently. 
I, re- I still remember the days when I was younger and I would meet someone of another religion and I would be like, you what? You don't believe in Jesus? You don't. And I had this sort of because it was scary to me to have someone believe something different because my life was about believing Jesus. And if you believe something different, I was now in a little bit of turmoil. But our, our, our propensity is to hear something different and then to immediately divide them and separate them. Oh, well, you just think differently than me. You must be a X, Y, Z. But I want to encourage us today that we don't have to divide things to distinguish them. A great example of this is the Trinity. People fought and killed each other for centuries over this one. You know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Chalcedonian hypostatic union of Christ. Three, whatever, 20-something. But it's the idea that, that God is somehow over everything. He's united, but he's not separate, but he's distinguished. And if all you've got is a division, well, God the Father, well, he's different than God the Son. Well, no, he's not different. He's together. He's distinguishing without dividing. Does that make sense? And another great way to think about this is to think about the show Downton Abbey. Anybody ever watch that show? You can out yourself. We're not going to we're not going to put you down for long. I used to think that was a silly show. It's like, why is my wife wasting her time on this British humor? They just stand around in coat and tie and like what? But then I got sucked in. And it turns out it's a really interesting show uh, about the, the turn of the century from the 19th to the 20th century and about the change is what's going on culturally in, in Great Britain. And I don't know if they were called Great Britain at that time. I'm not good with my. English history, but this this change from a landed aristocracy to more of a democratic model. And in Downton Abbey, this great big house, they had this dining room and the dining room is the center of the cultural life. In the dining room, you get dressed up, ridiculous dressing to come into the dining room. And people would sit in the lobbies and they would all process in the dining room. And there were servants that would take care of all of their needs. And this this story is about how the aristocracy lives on the upstairs, but downstairs is where all the servants live in the kitchen. And there was a very big distinction between the kitchen and the dining room. Now, in that time period, the distinction served to enforce the cultural division that they had between the aristocracy and the lower classes. But things began to change. That aristocracy collapsed. The division between the upper class and the lower class seemed to erode. But the distinction has remained, right? We still have kitchens and and dining rooms and in kitchens, right? Does anyone think that the person in the kitchen is a lower class citizen than the one in the dining room? Men all together now. This is easy one. No. Some gender stereotypes for Sunday. No. So we retain the distinction, but we've removed the division. And I want to talk to you this morning about the distinction between the principles of God and the presence of God. Because I think a lot of times we confuse the principles of God for the presence of God. And principle, by definition, Webster's definition of it is a principle is a, is a thing or a, a set of beliefs or an ideology that serves as the foundation for how we make our choices. So who am I going to vote for? Well, most of the time we call on our principles and maybe have very well developed principles. Maybe we just have partisan principles and we vote for the letter. But we choose what we do based on an idea that we hold. 
a principle. And principles are not bad. I think that they can be pretty important, but they're not the presence of God. Jesus demonstrates in a couple of really important moments what the difference is here between a principle and the presence. One of them is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's in John 7. And Jesus is hanging out with his brothers and his brothers come to him and they say, Jesus, you've got to go up to Temple Mount. Sukkot is going on. And I love that I can say Sukkot here. Y'all know what Sukkot is? You do Daryl proud. He's gone. We know what Sukkot is. It's the festival of tabernacles. It's the celebration of the indwelling of God's presence. Heaven to earth. Tabernacle of Moses on on the temple or on Mount Sinai. God gets it, brings it to earth, fills it, and they all party for seven days, remembering the moment of God's dwelling with them. And so it's Sukkot. It's a big deal. It's about the presence of God on the earth. And the brothers say to Jesus, like, Jesus, you've got to go to Temple Mount because no one who wants to be known openly does everything that you're doing in secret. Sounds like a good principle. I mean, I can imagine if you're running for political office, you wouldn't want to do all your speeches to yourself in your bedroom. You want to go out in the open. If you want to be openly known, you can't do all your works in the secret. And then John gives us this little editorial comment. He says, and his brothers said this because they didn't believe in him. So they've got a principle that they're applying to Jesus in their unbelief, trying to get him to do something they think he ought to do. And it sounds like good wisdom, right? Go make yourself known, Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and he says, my time has not yet come. And so they go. And the next verse is, and Jesus went ahead to the festival and stands upon Temple Mount and starts teaching. I'm like, okay, what's this moment about for Jesus? Did he just lie? Did he just commit a sin? Lying to his brothers? It's, no, I'm not going. It's not my time. Maybe he just didn't want to travel, walk with them all the way from the Galilee. Maybe they were noisy and talkative travel companions. Or maybe Jesus is not just trying to get her done. Maybe he's trying to stay connected to his father. Maybe this moment they leave and he's like, God, that principle, father, that principle that they, I'm probably not saying these words, but go with me here. That principle that they told me, if you want to be openly known, you can't do the deeds in secret. Father, that seems true to me. Do I go to this? Do I stay? And I'm pretty sure that the father said, go. Because Jesus does tell us later on and in other places at many times that he only does what he sees the father doing and he only says what the father is saying. So in this moment, instead of following a principle that has good wisdom, that's given out of unbelief to try and get Jesus to do something, I imagine the brothers were saying, we know you, we're having a really hard time believing you're the Messiah. And if you think you are the Messiah, we don't really think you are. But if you think you are, then prove it to us. Do something ridiculous and audacious. Go and stand on Temple Mount and teach. You've got to do this there in front of everybody. But Jesus isn't trying to get it done. He's trying to stay connected to his father. And so when he goes to Temple Mount, he says, I think the reason, you can go and look at this scripture after in John 7, 15-ish. He tells everyone the reason, essentially, why he didn't go. 
And he says that people that come and they speak on their own authority are speaking for, for their own glory. If you speak based on your own authority, you're seeking your own glory. If you speak out of your own principles and ideas, what you're seeking is to elevate yourself. But if you are seeking the glory of the one who sent you, then you go by his authority is his punchline to that question. So it's not about going and doing what you're supposed to do. It's about following the father into what you're called to do. Not just doing the right biblical principle. It's about following the presence of God and that's where the real solutions come. At least in the life of Jesus, they did. And Jesus was able to do this in John 7 because earlier, when he gets baptized in the River Jordan and he comes up and the Spirit of God descends like a dove and the Father speaks from heaven, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And he goes through this process with Satan. This exact one that he triumphs on on Temple Mount. Because Satan comes to Jesus and with three temptations, he says, turn this bread or turn this stone into bread. He says, announce yourself on Temple Mount, throw yourself off the top and worship me to get the kingdoms of this earth. Turn the stone into bread. That's about being the bread of life. That's about nourishment and sustaining. In a more practical sense, did Jesus do miraculous food miracles, like turning things into food. I don't think he turned bread or stone into bread, but he multiplied stuff. He got, you know, lots of food miracles. Jesus was actually called by his father to do the thing that Satan was asking him to do. But he said no, because man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, my father. I'm not just getting it done. I'm following God. The next one, same kind of a deal. He says, he takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple. And the pinnacle of the temple was this spot on the southwestern corner of the temple. And there was a niche cut out. And there's this giant rock that lays at the bottom of this temple in situ now in Jerusalem today. The, the real one's in a, in a museum. But they've left it, a replica of it. And on the top of it, it says the place of the trumpeting in Hebrew. That's the pinnacle of the temple. And the place of the trumpeting was the spot where every Shabbat and at the beginning of, 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 fest, of fest people, would, would, they were called to this. They would stand and they would blow the trumpet or they would blow the shofar and they would announce the arrival of Lady Shabbat or the arrival of the festival. Essentially, that was a place of announcing to all of Israel that God was coming, that God was coming in. That the presence of the Lord was coming. That the time for remembering and Sabbath was coming. That was a place of announcing to Israel that God was coming. Was Jesus announcing to Israel that God was coming? Yeah. But he wasn't doing it following this, the devil's stuff. The third one was about worship. And you get the picture. Was Jesus given all the kingdoms of this earth? Colossians 1, yeah, but he didn't get it by worshiping the devil. And the devil tempts us into thinking that we can get the kingdoms of this earth through doing what he wants us to do. And a lot of people actually do get lots of fame and notoriety following that voice. And the kingdoms of this earth think that's awesome, but it's not from the Father. And so there's a difference between the presence of God and the principles of even if they're godly principles that have good wisdom and good reasoning, when you're primarily connected to those principles, we can get off. 
I have three kids. My oldest is Sophia. And when she was two, she had a, a great desire to bolt out of the house and run into the street. And that caused me a measure of anxiety as a father. The first kid's a practice kid, and I didn't really know how to respond well to it. So usually I just yelled after her, no. And, and I would, I would I'd have panic because I don't want you to get run over. And we lived in this little golf community. It was gated, and they, I mean, on a cul-de-sac. No one's going to run her over. But, but so, so what I would do is I would take her up to the edge of the driveway, and I'd stand with her feet right on the edge of the driveway in the circle, and I would say, no. No, I know some parents don't say no, but I didn't read that book and no. And I turn her around and I'd say, yes, play house life. No. And she eventually learned it and she would run up to the edge and then and then go back to play. And I was like, I'm a great father. Well, some things changed over the years and we moved recently into a new neighborhood and it's on a busier street and she's five or six now and she's older. And so she had this little princess scooter that I got her and took way too long to put it together. And she was riding down the sidewalk and we didn't have much of, or she's riding down a driveway and we didn't have much of a, a, a driveway. And she got to the end and she wanted to ride up the street on the sidewalk. And I was like, you can go, go. And I'm standing behind her saying, go, you can ride. And I see her start shaking. She turns around, she's weeping. And she's shaking and she's scared because for her whole life up to this point, street is no death, bad. Daddy says, no, street is bad. Bad is death. Death is not good. No. And now she's got fear and anxiety. She's old enough to know the difference. But now the principle of prohibition that held her as a child before she had the cognitive ability and the maturing to, to, to do what she's doing now, that principle of prohibition that was healthy was now a prison keeping her from, stu- from her growing freedoms. The principle became a prison. So what did I need to do? Well, I needed to help her come into relationship with the street. And to discard that principle that held her, now that she's maturing, she needs to understand how the street works. She needs to understand that cars drive on the right side in the the God-blessed America, the right way it should be done. And you don't go on the left side to drive. And you go like this. And so I took her and I sat her down. I made her put her feet in the street. And that was hard. Like she was scared. Like she wouldn't even touch the street. I said, Sophia, when you're a baby, you didn't understand these things, but you're a big girl now and we're growing up and we're learning new things. And when you were a baby, you didn't understand. But now the street is good. She's like, no, I was like, no, the street is good. Do you like going to church? Grandma's house, H-E-B to get buddy bucks? Yeah. Well, we get there on the street. We drive on the street. Is daddy a good driver? I shouldn't have asked her that question, Uh, but So I began to teach her about the street and she began to understand, oh, the street is not bad. I understand the street because I'll tell you this much. If she's still freaked out of the street, street freaked out by the street at 16, she is not getting her driver's license because scared drivers make bad choices. So she needed to mature in her relationship to the street and discard the principle that I gave her that was healthy as a child. Does that make sense? 
Now, what this also shows me is it gave me a bit of an indication of what can happen in your life if your primary connection is to a principle about a thing and not the presence of God. One of the things that happens pretty much immediately, this is how you know if you're primarily connected to a principle. Let's say in a hypothetical world that that there's an important legal body in our nation that makes a decision that you're unhappy with. And this is how you know if you're primarily connected to a principle. One of the first things that comes is outrage and anger. Because when you're connected to a principle, the most important thing is the universal application of the godly principle that you believe in. Because it stands to reason very clearly that if the world is built on these principles and the world begins to discard the principles, then the foundation on which the world is built is going to erode. And so the moral erosion of your principled world happens very quickly when people stop thinking and believing like you. And a lot of times what that produces is anger. Because anger is a cheap emotion. It's easy. It's fast. It feels powerful. But what's right underneath anger, y'all, is fear. And the fear is the things you value are falling apart. And that's a real feeling. And it may be actually happening. And remember, I'm making distinctions here. I'm not dividing or calling this bad. I'm helping you understand some, see some mechanisms that are at place in place here, and hopefully we can move to a better solution. So we get angry because we're afraid. Because if the only solution to the decline is the broader implementation of the discarded moral principle, how do I make everybody believe and follow the things of God? How do I do that? That quickly leads to the next step, which is powerlessness, a feeling of powerlessness. How do you change the 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 courts? How do you change the laws? How do you change your spouse? Like, how, how do you get people to believe? And immediately, at least for me, I start feeling this powerlessness of like, oh, I'm helpless. I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. This, this is just throw up our hands. It's overwhelming. And it is. From that place of powerlessness, two main responses usually happen. One is apathy. Because apathy is a solution to this experience of powerlessness. Because it hurts. If you're very principled and convicted and something is not going the way that, that we believe it should go and you get angry and you get afraid, that's painful. We don't like to live in pain. I don't think we're actually made to live our lives in pain. And so a solution to that pain comes as apathy. It's, a, it's, a, it's either a numbing of the heart a dumbing down of the moral principle. Oh, well, maybe it wasn't really that bad. Maybe the thing I believed really wasn't that, that true because everyone else does this. And so we begin to erode our own principles as a solution to the pain and we become apathetic. And a lot of times apathy leads people into being part of the problem that they were originally so angry about and afraid about. And then you get to live with the hypocrisy of all of that, which the devil loves to exploit. Another option, if you don't want to go to apathy, is resentment, bitterness. How dare these people do this 
to me, my community, my family, my nation, my party, my whatever. How dare they do this? I am angry. And now the anger circles back in in bitterness and resentment. Which is, I think, where most of America is today. We're bitter. We're angry. We're divided. And we feel totally justified in that anger because we are watching the erosion of our principles in front of our eyes and we're powerless to stop it. And now we're angry and we're bitter. And usually what comes right on the heels of angry and bitter is judgment. Because judgment is a powerful equalizer. When you're unempowered and helpless, judgment levels the playing field. It empowers you. And here's the definition of judgment. Judgment is about applying the discarded principle with force on those who reject it, often seen with punitive consequences. So if we could just force these people to think like we think, things would get better. How do we force them? Well, usually it's through verbal or physical violence. Forcing people to adopt our principles. And this is where a lot of stuff that I've read over the last week or so, I think is coming from. And in the church, some people think that that God's judgment, his forceful applying via some kind of death or destruction or natural disaster that that his forceful applying of his principles that we have discarded is his preferred method of dealing with sin judgment they think is god's preferred method of dealing with sin and i present to you the entire life and ministry of jesus christ as the counter to that belief system read john three seventeen. go past the the nfl platitude and read right next to it And it says, Jesus, I did not come into the world to condemn or to judge the world, but to save it through me. Jesus didn't come into the world to forcefully apply onto everyone the Old Testament law. He came to draw everyone to the Father through himself. That was the work in the life and the ministry of Jesus. We get saved through Jesus, not through having the right principles and belief. And again, this is a distinction, not a division, because we could do a whole 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 time on what does it mean to have right beliefs that lead us into good thinking that help us because principles hold children until they mature and connect with the presence of God. The law held us as children until we could finally die to ourselves and live in Christ. That's another message. But here is a way to know that you're connected to a loving father and not just a principle, but to the presence of God. Same scenario, same set of data, same problems in the world. And now instead, when you look at that, instead of feeling anger, you feel sorrow. There is a righteous anger. In the scriptures, it talks about that. Righteous anger is always connected to a godly sorrow. When God comes in his anger in the Old Testament, his heart is breaking that people are not living the way that he asked them to live. Why? Because there's no life living outside of God. And when you look around at the broken world, I don't get angry anymore. I used to get really angry. But now I'm just very, I'm sorrowful. Because I know the life that's available in God. 
And I know that living outside of that is a painful, hard place to live. And so I don't have fear underneath that anymore. Instead of fear now, what happens? Faith starts rising up. Because we know the one who sets people free. And we know the one that shines light in the dark places. And I'm not afraid. I'm sorrowful. But he came that the captives would be set free and that the light would arise and the healing would appear. So now faith empowers hope and love into action. And then we realize instead of feeling powerless and helpless... We're actually very powerful. We've been empowered by God, not our own ideas about him, not our own community civic organizations. We get empowered by the spirit of God. Acts 1, I think it's 8. Yeah. Disciples, Jesus is up on the mountain about ready to be taken up off the planet to go be with dad. And they're saying, well, now are you going to restore the kingdoms? He's like, oh, have I been with you so long? No. But I'll tell you what. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be empowered by the presence of God. You have power. You have influence. And when you realize you're influential and you've got great power, instead of being apathetic, all of a sudden I'm actually concerned. I've never been more concerned for our nation and I've never been less afraid. Because I'm a powerful man with the word of the Lord. And I can influence our nation. And I can influence my environment. And I don't have influence in Washington. You know, if you do, come talk to me. I'd love to meet you. Uh, Most of us don't have influence in Washington, D.C. But we do have influence in our own minds. Let's start there. We have influence in our families. If you're powerful and you have concern and you can influence things, then start doing it. There's freedom, real freedom available. And instead of apathy, we get concern. And when we have concern, resentment doesn't build up in us. Something else does. Love does. And love is not a religious platitude or a Twitter hashtag that wins. Love is the effect of God in your life empowering you to not be afraid to have the solutions that come from heaven. Even if you don't know what they are yet, we know what the solution is. Connection to God. That's the solution. How do I apply that solution to right now? Maybe we should start asking. So now love is growing in my heart. Love can grow in your heart instead of the anger and the resentment. And then you'll know how to navigate. Well, do we love the sin or love the sinner and hate the sin? How do we do that? That's just that doesn't mean anything unless you're connected to the presence of God. And you've got this in you that you understand that. And that's not a phrase that I'll, you know, that that I think does a whole lot to help me articulate what goes on in me. Um, And then here is where we really get instead of judgment that equalizes the field and re-empowers those who feel helpless. Instead of judgment equalizing it, something else levels the field. This thing lowers the proud and it elevates the humble and it's freedom. Genuine freedom. Because the world is free to reject God. God created us with the capacity to make a really bad choice in the garden that cost God his only son. 
He's empowered us to make choices. And the world becomes free again to actually be who they are. Guys, I really think that the church has kept much of the, relig- the religious institutions in some of these places, in some of these waves. We've kept the world from actually being who they really are. Because we've said you don't have a choice, you've got to do this. God didn't even say that to people. You always have a choice to follow him or not follow him, to love him or not love him. We do have a choice. And when people get given freedom and an encounter with God, that's where life really begins to happen. And so standing on principles, they're good. Again, not a division, a distinction. Principles are very good for helping children grow up. But there comes a time, like in Hebrews 6, when he looks at him like, by now you should have been adults eating meat, but you're still drinking milk. Let's move ahead from the elementary principles of Christian faith into the presence of God and the encounter. And you can go boldly into the throne of grace and receive mercy in times of trouble. That's two passages together. But we're invited into a personal encounter and connection to God. And I've talked a lot about Maybe how principles are bad. Uh, maybe you're still hearing that. So let me give you a, let me give you a principle here uh, to live by. Kind of a weird ending, but here it is. I call it the Joseph principle. And I love Joseph. And I think Joseph is an important guy to look at, particularly in the season that we're in in our country. But Genesis 41, Joseph gets called out of prison after he's been his whole story. Gets called out to stand before Pharaoh, and it's life and death for this guy. Because the other magicians have been killed. And he's standing and Pharaoh says, what's my interpretation of the dream? And Joseph looks at him and he says, without beating an eye, and it's not in me to give you, but my Lord will give you the answer that you need. What if we could begin living that way? Is this right or is this wrong? What do we do about this? What do we do about this? I don't know. But I know the one who does. Let me go ask him we may start getting real solutions to real problems instead of just reinforcing the problems with more of our own ideas. And whether they're God-informed ideas or something else, if they're our ideas, they're just going to reinforce the division. And I don't think that the devil cares one way or another whether you're on the religious side of the issue or the secular side of the issue. As long as you're angry and you need to be right and you're using division to get everyone to believe the same way, you're doing his work. And you can run off onto Temple Mount and start running your mouth and do nothing. Or you can stop for a minute and say, Father, is it time? And he says, yes. And now you may say the exact same things, but now you're anointed with authority from heaven. And the words that you speak have spirit and life and power on them. And things really start to change. So if you're concerned about the direction of your own life, your children, your nation, I invite you into an encounter in a presence with God. Take all of your learning. Take all of your knowledge. Take all of your principles. Take them all to God and say, God, this is what I know. I feel this. This needs to happen because of all these things. And I have all this. Take those to the Father. Don't take those to the ballot box. Take them to the Father. And if the Father says, take that, and vote this way, speak this way, then you go and do it. And go and do it with strength. And do it with love. And do it connected to God the Father. 
not your own ideas about what ought to happen because you're too scared to go ask God, what are you doing? And I believe, church, that there are people in this room this morning that have influence in our city that can do this. And I want to invite you to go and ask the Father in any decision, in every decision that you make, what are you doing, Father? I know this, and I think this is you. Is this you? Do you have another way? What are you doing in our government? What are you doing in the, in the courts? What are you doing? Show me and empower me to do that with you. That, let heaven come. Let heaven come. And we can say, let heaven come. It exists already in the heavens, y'all. Just need it here. It's not that hard. What are you doing? Do it here now. And do it together. Invite the worship team and the communion teams up. We're going to get to do that together here this morning. Because Jesus said to do communion in remembrance of him. And remembrance is not just recalling something, but it's recalling it to mind and then rehearsing it. Doing the activity and the action of living that out. It's not an idea, but an activity puts us into an encounter, into the presence of that. And so we're going to do that here this morning. I'm Harold Burkhardt, one of the clergy in the congregation here. So pleased to be with you today. You see the elements here, but I'm impressed that Adam's cup was the altar too. It means that we're all part of communion, of the Lord's word, of the Lord's grace. And so uh, Jesus said when he came to the Last Supper with his disciples, he said... This is the bread that represents my body, which I give to you and break unto you, to you all, to everyone. He didn't say Methodist. He said, everyone, you are all invited. And he broke the bread. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the blood, my blood, which was shed for you and for all in the glory of God and for each of you. And so you are invited to come and partake as we witness ourselves and our beliefs, but not only our beliefs, but our life in giving to God. Amen. <laughs>